<laughs> Last night, I, I don't like the whole self-deprecating thing. I don't do that often. I don't think it's a good look. But last night at 10 o'clock, Chris Green texted me. And he said, are you preaching? And I said, yeah. And he goes, call me. And I went, oh, no. And this is a, a kind of pseudo word today. This is not anything that I had prepared. This is actually something that was on Chris's heart. And so I'm going to do my best Chris Green impersonation today. Um, no, really, I do think it's a good word and one, one that is timely for us. I want to start with this other text for today. This is our New Testament text out of Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul writing. He says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example that you have in us. I want to pause for just a moment. This whole idea of imitation. I think this is one of the ways that particularly the church in, in America has been impoverished in a sense, that we have ignored the lives of the saints. We think about impersonation or imitation, and we think, well, Jesus is the one we should imitate. And if not Jesus, then at least some other biblical figure, some other biblical character, probably somebody out of the Old Testament, if we're honest. But in doing this, I think we have eliminated the examples of the saints, which means that we've ignored the lessons that the saints actually have to teach us. So Jesus is not so much our example, and I know that's going to hit our ear strangely today. Jesus is not our example. Jesus is not one of the holy ones. His example includes all of the examples of the saints, that Jesus is holy in a way that makes the holy snippets of our lives possible. Jesus is not the most holy one in the room of other slightly less holy people. Jesus is holy in a way that makes our holiness and the holiness and the lives of the saints possible for us. So one of the things that I think needs to be recaptured is our understanding and our exposure to the saints because the saints show us what is possible for us. The saints provide us with this glimpse of what kind of life really is possible in Christ. And sin is always the result of a lack of imagination, a lack of a way of seeing what's possible for the world. And so rather than having the same kind of imagination that the saints have, we rely on our own kind of common sense in navigating the world. And the problem with that is by relying on our own common sense, we actually subvert or sidestep the work that God wants to do in the world. So the saints show us what's possible. The saints show us how to have a different kind of imagination for the world. And so Paul says, imitate him because there are others out there who live as what he calls in the next verse, enemies of the cross. This is what he says about them. He says, for many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. A few things 
that we're meant to hear, that we do in fact have enemies. And again, I think so much of what I want to say today, what Chris wants to say through me today to you, is gonna hit us a little sideways. But we do have to wrestle with and come to terms with the reality that we have enemies. This is a reality for us. But these are enemies, not necessarily of us, but enemies of the cross. These are people who we would say are enemies of God, in a sense. Those are those people who oppose or they resist the will of God and God's kingdom and God's work in the world. Paul claims that these people are enemies of the cross. And if we're not careful, we're given over to this idea that we don't, in fact, have any enemies, right? I think these are the the two extremes that we're always in danger of falling into. Either to, to think that everyone who thinks differently than us is our enemy, or to just think that, well, we don't really have any enemies at all, this kind of naive approach. I think these are the extremes. So either we don't have any enemies or everyone is our enemy. But once we understand that enemies do in fact exist, again, the temptation is to assume that the enemies consist of everyone who doesn't have all the same ideas about God that I do. So anyone who disagrees with me is my enemy and therefore an enemy of the cross. Which leads us to think that anyone who agrees with me is a friend of the cross. But it turns out that the Venn diagram of God's enemies and your enemies and God's friends and your friends is not a perfect circle. We do have enemies, but they're not people who are opposed to us. They're people who are opposed to the work that God is doing in the world. And sometimes that includes you. (laughs) Sometimes that includes me. There are times when I exist as an enemy of the cross, and that happens when I let my own common sense win out over and against the foolishness of the kingdom. A quick example of this. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was in Israel and toured through Israel and, and Palestine, and someday soon, I'll have like some night where I play a slideshow and we can talk about it if you want. But I'm still kind of grasping at how I want to talk about so many things that I experienced and people that I talked to. But one situation in particular that I think speaks to this idea. There's this woman named Roni, and she lives, if you know where the Gaza Strip is, she lives like right next door. Um, They live in a mashav, it's a Jewish community. And she's been there for a long, long time. And before they lived in this mashav, in this community next door to Gaza, she lived in Gaza before there was a wall around it. And she lived among Palestinians. She lived among other Arabs and Egyptians. And they had a community, a fruitful community together before they got pushed out and the wall was built around Gaza. Roni has some really interesting ideas about what peacemaking looks like. Roni is not fooled into thinking that violence, by eliminating the threat, is any kind of fruitful way of enacting any kind of change in the world. Now, Roni is in her late 70s. 
She has a son who's in his late 40s, early 50s. He's had a much different set of experiences. He's served in the Israeli army. He had Palestinian friends at one point who turned against him. He had Egyptian friends who hated him when he was pushed out. And so he's had a very different set of experiences. And so for him, his imagination, the common sense that he has bought into is that we live here next door to people who are a threat to us. And the only way to live in safety, the only way to live in peace, is to eliminate the threats. This is common sense. But Roni has learned what it is to embody a kind of foolishness of the kingdom. And so she is working on creating connections and relationships and opening, opening up lines of communication with people in Gaza, trying to find ways of moving toward one another to create a different kind of future altogether. Now, one thing that happened while we were there, and when I say when we were there, we were in Roni's house. Her son was sitting at one end of the room, and, we were, and his, his mother was sitting at the other end, and we're sitting between them, and we're just hearing these stories back and forth, right? And at one point, Roni's son looks at her, and he says to her, you're just a dreamer. You're just a dreamer. Nothing of what you talk about, nothing of what you hope for is ever going to happen. And here in the midst of a room full of strangers, she looked at him and says, no, you're the dreamer. She said, you're the dreamer because you think that by doing the same thing we've been doing to the same people for the last 70 years, that anything different is going to come about in the world. She said, you're the dreamer. My hopes will be realized one day. This is what we mean when we talk about buying into common sense and resisting the foolishness of the kingdom. And this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about enemies of the cross of Christ. Common sense tells us eliminate the threat. The foolishness of the kingdom says do good to those who hate you. So we have enemies. Our enemies and the enemies of the cross, the enemies of God, are not always the same. And three, we're called to oppose the enemies of God, but in ways that see them through eyes of compassion, in ways that frame them inside the compassion of God. We don't oppose and overcome God's enemies by force or by winning. We oppose and overcome God's enemies by befriending Jesus, who is the man of sorrows. And to befriend the man of sorrows is to embrace and to be well acquainted with a life of sorrow. Again, Paul speaks about the enemies of the cross with tears in his eyes. Tears for Christ in his crucifixion and in his affliction. And tears for those enemies who live in ways that are ultimately going to end in death. Christ names, or Paul names the enemies, but he does so with tears, with a broken heart. He takes no joy in naming the enemies of the cross. Unfortunately for us, sorrow doesn't win fights. Compassion doesn't beat our enemy in the way that we would like our enemy to be beaten. I would rather my enemies be beaten with chairs, not with compassion. 
And oftentimes we get so caught up in our thirst and our hunger for justice that we want to beat our enemies so badly that even when it comes from a place of righteousness, we end up turning to the very same evils that we accuse our enemies of being consumed by. Jesus talks about this in terms of you cannot cast out the devil with the devil. Paul, he's defining the enemies of the cross. And one of the characteristics that he lists is he says, their God is the belly. Paul says for them that the enemies of the cross, their God is the belly. Put another way, the God that they serve is their insatiable appetites. Appetite in and of itself isn't bad. Desire in and of itself isn't bad. Paul is not body shaming anybody in this comment. This is about the way that we confuse our appetite and our desires with the desire of God. This is part of the work of fasting in a season like Lent. When we allow our desires to well up within us, when we cultivate a kind of hunger within us for those things, even good things that we've chosen to do without, and we ask ourselves the question, what do I long for most? Fasting makes clear for us our appetites, our longings, our desires in ways that show us whether we are aligned with God's will in the world Or are we opposed to God's will? Are we friends of the cross or are we enemies of the cross? Fasting makes clear for us our appetites. The saints, particularly St. Teresa, St. John of the Cross, they talk about these seasons of fasting as a way of being saved from our experience of God. That in these seasons when we need God to save us, we need him most to save us of our experience of God so that we can realize God and trust God and lean into God as he really is and not as who we expect him or experience him to be. In these seasons, we need God to save us from our experiences of God because God does not call us to experience him. God does not call us to experience our neighbor. We're called to love God and to love our neighbor, not what our neighbors can do for us or what God can do for us. Paul ends, well, one of his endings. This is how you know Paul is like a 20th century preacher, because in this short letter of Philippians, he says, finally, like four times, Finally, <laughs> as if he's wrapping it up. But in the end of this section of the, the, to the Philippians, he says to them to stand firm. He says to resist the enemies of the cross by knowing who they are and then standing firm. And to be sure, standing firm isn't about establishing a Christian nation Standing firm is not about protecting my denomination or my version of Christianity. You know, in the middle of this war in Ukraine, standing firm, I would say, does not look like Kirill, who is the Orthodox patriarch of Moscow. 
In a lot of ways, he has painted himself as an enemy of the cross. He is somebody who has supported this war as a kind of God-ordained act of good. This is the position that he's taken. That's not what it is to stand firm, as Paul's talking about standing firm. To stand firm is to hope. To stand firm is to trust that what God did in Jesus and for Jesus, God will do in you and for you. And we should ask, what we should be asking is, what is it that God did in Jesus? Paul says it in verse 21 of Philippians 3. He says, He transformed the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of His glory. What is he saying? That by being humiliated, Christ was glorified. However you are ridiculed or however you are misunderstood, however you are humiliated because you stand firm in your hope in resurrection and your identity as a citizen of heaven, as Paul says, he goes on to say that God will transform that humiliation into glory. But that's the thing. We believe that in Christ the dead are raised, but who is it that's raised? The dead are raised. Paul says that those who are humiliated will be glorified, but who is it that is glorified? It's those who are humiliated, those who look like fools, those who refuse to fall back on their own understanding and their own common sense for making sense of the world. It's the humiliated that are glorified. And part of that humiliation is to refuse to settle for the common sense of the world because you have bought into the foolishness of the kingdom. You've bought into the foolishness of turning the other cheek, of going the extra mile, of doing good to those who hate you, of giving someone your robe when they ask you for your coat. You have refused to buy into postures of judgment and cynicism in exchange for compassion and hope. None of this makes sense in a world of competition and brutality, but it means that you are a friend of the cross. And God promises to be faithful to those who know themselves as friends. Finally, imitating Paul now. We've heard the gospel, the fox and the hen. We've heard Paul's letter to imitate and to know the friends and the enemies of the cross. And now there's this curious text, this Old Testament text we're given today in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, this is the story of God's covenant with Abraham. Before he's Abraham, he's Abram at this point. And none of this makes sense. I'm going to let you know that right out of the gate, and then we'll try to figure out what's happening. So God comes to Abram, and Abram is complaining again about the lack of descendants. It's interesting. The very first thing that Abram ever says to God is a question. He doesn't acknowledge him. It's not an act of worship before God. The very first thing that he ever does is doubt that God is going to do what God said he was going to do. Your lack of (laughs) certainty 
does not spook God. If right now the best thing you can muster before God is a question, that's good enough. Our history is riddled with people who had nothing but questions before God. We live in a world that really likes certainty, that really likes answers, that really likes to tie bows on things and move on to the next issue. That's not how life with God works. Some days I wake up, and I'm sure you do too, and I feel just a little bit lucky to even believe it all over again. (laughs) But that's okay. God's not scandalized by that in the way that we are. So Abram's asking hard questions of God, and God, again, is doubling down on these promises. Your descendants are going to be numerous. And then it says that as the sun was going down, let me back up a little bit. The sun's not yet gone down. God tells Abram to bring some animals. And what's interesting is God doesn't say anything to Abram about actually sacrificing them. He just says, bring them to me. And then the next verse says that Abram cuts them all in half. Sometimes, again, we rush to our common sense and the things that we know before we wait on the foolishness of God. So God says, bring me these animals. Abram brings the animals, and then he kills all the animals. And then he cuts them in half, and he lays them opposing one another side by side. And so it says that the sun goes down, and a deep sleep falls upon Abram as he's protecting the sacrifice. Birds of prey are swooping in, and he's protecting the sacrifice that he's just made. And it says that a deep sleep falls upon him, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. A deep and terrifying darkness. Now, really curious piece. To go back to the gospel for just a moment, Jesus tells the Pharisees to go tell that fox, speaking of King Herod. And what happens in this is this is like all-time shade for Jesus, all right? To call him a fox is an insult and an insult in the highest order, and it's incredible. Because in the Jewish tradition, when you talked about foxes, you also talked about lions. And so one of the exchanges that you would often see is when you'd have younger rabbis sitting in the presence of older rabbis. If someone were to come to a young rabbi and say, you know, I have a question for you or ask something of them, the response they would often give is, why do you ask me a fox when there's a lion in the room? So Jesus is saying, go tell that fox, which is a way of saying, Herod's no lion. (laughs) Incredible. Put this one in your hopper. Like, when you really want to insult somebody, this is what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is basically saying, Herod's no lion, and now I have work to do. Now, let me say this, and if it gets me in trouble, you can go talk to Bishop Ed after. If this rubs you wrong because... Jesus is insulting authority. I, I hear you. <laughs> this makes us uncomfortable. We start talking about Jesus and how he relates to the powers of his day. And there are times when we should be respectful of authorities. Primarily when those authorities are caring for the weak. 
And then there are times when authorities are abusing those who are weak, and we need to name them for the foxes that they are. If you are more worried about being respectful to people in power than you are about grieving over those who are oppressed and grieving over what that is doing in the oppressed and in the oppressor, you might find yourself an enemy of the cross in this way. Moving on. So, Herod is the fox, Jesus is the hen, and now we come to this story of Abraham and this strange, deep, terrifying darkness that he finds himself in. The text says that he's protecting this sacrifice, and this deep sleep falls on him. In the Gospels, we read about two kinds of dark places, don't we? the belly of the fox, and the wing of the hen. Both of these are kinds of darkness that we might find ourselves in. In the belly of the fox, you have the darkness of being eaten up by Caesar and Herod versus the darkness under the wing of the hen. And this is what we're meant to see today, that the fox is only interested in devouring you. The fox is only interested in using you and your energies. It metabolizes you, your devotion, your attention for its own purposes and its own needs. One of the ways that we can tell whether we are a friend of the cross or an enemy of the cross, is by taking stock of what has our attention and what has our devotion and what do we give our energies to. If it turns out that you're giving all of your devotion and all of your time and all of your energies to other things, you might be getting devoured and not even knowing it. What is consuming us in our devotion the hen does not consume you like the fox does. The hen broods. And if that language sounds familiar, it should, because like the spirit, this darkness that falls upon Abram is the same kind of darkness that falls over the world in creation. Something new might be being born in you when you find yourself in seasons of darkness. So there are two kinds of darkness, but when that descends on Abram and oftentimes when darkness descends on you and on me, we don't know which kind it is. We don't know if we're being devoured or if we are being brooded. And here's the thing, all of us sooner or later will find ourselves in a darkness. And we may not know what kind, we may not know whether we're being devoured or whether we are being mothered and brooded by the Spirit, but the good news is that Jesus allows himself to be devoured by the fox so that even if the fox swallows you up, Jesus is there too. This is the way we beat the fox. This is the way we overcome the enemies of the cross, by letting the fox devour us and God. The good news is that Jesus allows himself to be devoured. And when you let the fox eat you up and you stay committed to being human, when you don't fall back to your common sense, 
when you are human in the way that Jesus is human, and rather than resisting, you see your enemies through a lens and eyes of compassion. Your enemies are exposed as the foxes that they really are. And this is the good news, that only those things that are exposed can be healed. What is exposed, what those things that are brought to the light, those are the only things that can ever be mended, that can ever be reconciled. Again, the trick is that we have to stay committed to being human, even if we find ourselves being devoured. And this is what the saints teach us. Their lives are what they are because they are completely in touch with reality and what it means to be human. If the lives of the saints seem so out of reach for us, it's not because they're good, like, too good for earth. <laughs> it's because we don't know what it is to be that connected and that rooted in reality. The truth is the saints only seem out of reach to us because we are out of touch with ourselves and with the world. They're not so close to God that they can do no earthly good. They are smack dab in the middle of what it is to be human. Think of St. Teresa, Mother Teresa, in the inner cities of Calcutta. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. These are not people who are detached from reality. They are smack dab in the center of it. The saints are not less human. They're more human. <laughs> and they point us to what's possible. They give us new imagination for how we might be human in the world. Unfortunately for us and for them, saints are saints because they earned it. Here's what I mean. A couple months ago, uh, Amazon suggested this book to me. It's a children's book. It's called Stories of the Saints. You should look it up. It's beautiful. And it's an animated book supposedly designed for children. So I buy it and I think, wonderful. I'm going to start reading about the lives and the stories of the saints with my eight-year-old daughter, Eleanor, before bed every night. And it works through chronologically the lives of the saints from the earliest to the most recent. When I say the saints earned it, what I mean is they're all murdered in horrific ways. And the lives of the saints do not make great bedtime stories. <laughs> The saints allowed themselves to be devoured. They don't resist the fox in the way that common sense says to resist. They commit themselves to being human in the way that God imagines our humanity through Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Darkness is coming for you. That's the promise of a season like Lent. Maybe even this weekend, you have found yourself in a dark space. And in these seasons of yieldedness to God, when we give up illusions of control or we refuse to grasp for power, grasp for control in our lives, we are letting ourselves be brooded by the spirit, by the hen, rather than hunting like the fox. 
It's why we so often say that we hope you're lenting well. It's not <laughs> because we hope that you're enjoying Lent. We don't enjoy Lent. Anybody who tells you they enjoy Lent is lying to you and needs to repent. It's because when we assess our appetites, remember their God is the belly. It often gives way to the darkness that either comes with being devoured by the fox or brooded by the mothering God. And the reality is we might not know which one it is when it comes for us. We might not know what kind of darkness we find ourselves in. We're either being consumed or created. And if we want to be friends of the cross, people who overcome the enemies of the cross, the only way to overcome the fox is to be in the belly with the hen. And that's exactly what Jesus makes possible for us. Laying himself down, being humiliated, so that as we choose the foolishness of the kingdom over and against our own common sense, we won't be humiliated, but in the end, we will be glorified. Amen.